Welcome to the New Book Network Hindu Studies Channel podcast. I'm your host today, Craig Ginn from the University of Calgary, and I will be chatting with Dr. Raj Balkran, uh, talking about his book, The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, uh, Ring Composition, Royal Power, and the Dharmic Double Helix. Uh, welcome to the interview today, Raj. It's actually a pleasure to be on the other side of the chair today, of the desk, I should say. Yeah, because you normally would do these interviews, wouldn't you? I normally would, and um, it's sort of kind of fun to just sit back and let someone do the, someone else do the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we should also tell our audience that uh, you and I have done a few uh, podcast recordings for uh, Introduction to Religious Studies uh, at Ryerson and uh, U of C, U University of Calgary, and so we're, we're uh, accustomed to chatting uh, with many miles between us and using technology. Absolutely. Uh, Craig and I have uh, recorded before, and... Um, <laughs> the very first time uh, occurred, I believe, in, um, let's see, maybe 2012-ish, I was walking in the hallway in the department, and he pulls me in, <laughs> and we give an impromptu interview on, on, on the Indian worldview. Do you remember that? I do happen to remember that. You were a PhD uh, student at the time, and uh, I was looking for a conversation partner, and, uh, well, it was... Uh, Timely, let's put it that way. And you were very cooperative and uh, did an excellent job, as I recall. He strapped me down and I felt I had no choice. So, you know, just, <laughs> no, it was fun. It was good fun. We, we definitely have had. Uh, the thing is, I think the first couple of years of our interaction, we were, uh, our conversations um, could have been podcasts. We just didn't have a, anything to record them with at the time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, let, let's dive into this book if you're ready to start chatting about it. And, uh, uh, first of all, the title is intriguing. I mean, it's got this word dharmic double helix. Is that really the, the core idea of the book or, or part of the core idea? It's definitely one of the core ideas. Uh, it's an idea that's important to the book and also to Hindu studies at large. And it's essentially this um, pervasive tension we see in Hinduism between um, ascetic ideology and householder ideology. And what I say is householder ideology is epitomized by the king. So we'll call it royal ideology got tons and tons of stories of kings in exile talking to forest ascetics. And um, I present this idea that that is a literary encapsulation of this tension that never goes away in Hinduism because it never goes away in life. It's a tension between the inner life and the outer life, really. Yeah, and you, and you have coined that phrase, haven't you? Yeah, it's one, it came to me one day um, while I was writing. Uh, this must have been 2014, 2015. Yeah, yeah. And and so the there, there's some contrast here that you're trying to pull together. One is, as you say, the uh, the ascetic or the renunciate, uh, world denouncing, we might say, and then the world affirming role of the householder. And, and you see those in a, in a healthy tension, do you? Well, they're definitely in tension. And I think that, that trying to resolve the tension um, uh, is, is as problematic as it is um, short-sighted. The tension cannot be resolved. So Ascetic ideology and royal ideology, uh, the dharma of the householder in the world uh, and the dharma of the renouncer who renounces the world, they're going to be necessarily structural opposites. What happens in Hinduism is that they get folded back in. They can't ever converge, right? They're two strands, but they're two strands that get intertwined so that if you, if you take a step back, you see these two strands are actually part of the same double helical structure as opposed to uh, opposing strands. Right. And then as you uh, work this concept into your book or use this concept as a way to inform uh, 
the hermeneutic uh, of the, in your book, you, you on page 52 refer to the ascetic ideology and the royal ideology. And that's a critical lens here. I would say those are, that's, I would say those are the two, the two strands, right? The quintessence yeah. of the two strands is in, are in the ascetic and the king. And, um, I take my cue really because the, this, this book, which we probably will talk about in a moment is about the mythology of the, the great goddess in India. They really all of the insights, um, um, came tumbling out with this inaugural question. Why? Why are these glories of the goddess told to a king by an ascetic in the forest? Mm -hmm. And so the, these conversation partners are the conversation partners of these two overarching strands of Indian religiosity. Right. And so when when you think of the bigger picture, the, you know the central question then that you're asking in this book, uh, what would it be the the main thrust? Well, I started off with this um, question of why. Why are the glories of the goddess voiced by uh, a forest-dwelling ascetic to a deposed king? Um, that is that trope is elsewhere. It's throughout the epics, throughout the Mahabharata, mm -hmm. for example. Um, but also that that stance decides to look at the frame narrative as crucial to the text, and that's something that counters. Uh, uh, 150 years of scholarship on the text. Uh, there's been very little scholarship, but scholarship on the, the Hindu mythological text, the Puranas in general, the tendency is to look at the text um, shorn away from the frame narrative whereby it's considered the text was interpolated. So what I do is I say, interpolation or not, there's great, uh, there's conscious narrative design at play. And that Devi Mahatmya is stitched into the Markandi Purana with this frame narrative for a very important specific reason. And in ignoring the frame narrative, you ignore the, the very hermeneutic key whereby the sense makes the most text, uh, whereby the text makes the most sense. <laughs> so the, so the hermene hermeneutic key for you is, uh, to read this as uh, again from your, the, the Dharmic double helix. Is that, a hermeneutic device for yourself? So the, the, the key for me in these stories is to actually pay very, very careful attention to the frame narrative. And I believe that's um, categorically true of uh, Sanskrit narrative. Uh, so when applied in this case, when we're looking at the frame narrative, we see a conversation between the king and the, the king and the ascetic. So that dharmic double helix is one very important um, hermeneutic pillar upon which the study rests. The other, because one can make the argument, okay, well, well, clearly the text is privileging both. These characters are both important. But the subsequent st structure of the myths of the Devi themselves, they lend us to suggest that royal ideology is favored because of this thing called ring composition. Right, and that's part of your title as well, isn't it? Ring composition. Yes, it's it's another um, major theme of the book. So, what is a ring composition? Like, just to get to basics here, a ring composition is is really um, if you look at the the vast majority majority of, of stories that we love, um, whether whether from the ancient world, whether um, from Beowulf, whether from modern sci-fi fantasy, you'll find. Um, I always think of. Um, 
Tolkien's Lord of the Rings there and back again. So it's A, B, and then back to A. Mm. Right? So what, it could be it could be uh, multiple parts. Like uh, in the case of the David Mahatmya, it's, uh, it's a one, two, three, four, five, where three is the middle, uh, one and five mirror, two and four mirror. So the idea is that the, 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 the structure takes the form of a visual ring where you end up um, where you started, uh, but obviously having gone through a journey. Right. Now, you mentioned the word interpolation. Are you seeing more than one author behind this work and, con and contributing to the, the ring theory or the ring uh, composition structure? I think the question, uh, so I'll answer it on two levels. If we were to ask that question, yes. Uh, for me, it's clear that there would be multiple hands uh, at work in terms of producing what we now have in hand as the Devi Mahatmya and the glories of the goddess. Um, my research tends to ask in a synchronic fashion, what sense can we make of the finished product? Because all of those hands will have been, or certainly by the last redaction, by the last, by the last phase of editing the text, if you will, there was um, colossal uh, conscious design of how the text should be laid out. And in looking to which parts were before that final stage, we actually uh, eclipse the, 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 we eclipse the integrity of the way in which the text has landed, because it hasn't landed in this manner um, haphazardly, right? The, the ring composition um, is, uh, the ring composition is fundamental for the fabric of the text as it is um, currently, who knows if that would have been the case in previous iterations or portions of the text. Mm -hmm. And do you want to give us like the Coles Notes version of the David Mahatma in five minutes or less? Um, <laughs> Is that sure. possible? It's maybe an insulting question on the one hand. Oh, not at all. No? Not at all. No, there, I mean, there are many, many orders of, of resolution. Um, if you, if the uh, 30,000 foot view is that uh, there's a noble king who loses his throne and he is beside himself. He ventures into a forest. He comes across a merchant equally deposed. Uh, his merchant companion was, was thrown out by his, by his own family due to, due to their greed. And so we have these two um, existentially uh, wandering, deposed, disenfranchised beings. Uh, by the way, they meet at an ashram and a forest hermitage of a great sage, and they take uh, respite there, they find respite there. They eventually ask the sage about the nature of why they're suffering. The sage explains the mechanics of suffering to them, and he goes on to say, well, this, this delusion you experience is nothing else but, 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 the, but, but the great goddess, Mahamaya. The matrix is alive. The matrix is a goddess. Oh, by the way, she doesn't just delude you. She grants you whatever you want, and she finds you a way out of the maze, if that is your desire. She's actually the lady of all lords, if you will. She's the sovereign of all sovereigns. She's the queen of all kings. And all of a sudden, now the king is on fire. Noble sage, tell me, tell me, what are the acts of this goddess? Tell me about this, this, this majestic figure. And he goes, sure, no problem. And then he recounts three myths. Um, detailing the acts of Divine Mother. 
And at the end of his rendition, um, the king and the merchant go off and they worship her. They make a, a morti along the banks of a river and they offer incense and fruit and, and water and they offer hymns and she manifests before them and says, I'm pleased. By the way, this takes them three long years during which they ate very little, if not at all. Um, she manifests and says, I'm so pleased by your, by your worship. Um, I'll give you a boon, what it is, what you desire, whatever you desire, I'll grant. The merchant says, look, I just, I want that knowledge that will sever me from this world, sever me from I-ness and minus, from possession and identity. I want, I want the knowledge that grants truth. And the mother granted the merchant uh, moksha. The king did not desire moksha. The king wanted his kingdom back. And the mother said to him, okay, let it be so. She empowered him, gave him the strength and said to him in three days time go forth and conquer your foe your kingdom will be yours forevermore and once you've left this world in your next life you will be raised to the manu of the next age and so the frame narrative bespeaks this the the the, the, the it's ideologically rich in terms of encapsulating the ideology of the ascetic the ideology of the king, this Brahmanic ideology that's it's, that's the storm of double helix. It explains how the next Manu uh, comes into being. This is his karmic antecedent, this whole tale. Um, and she doesn't chastise him for his desire for royal power. Mm -hmm. she, re she rewards him for it. Why? Because she does in the cosmic sphere what kings are meant to do on earth. Yeah. Uh, leaders are meant to protect um, the imperil to protect the disenfranchised. And so this, this, this dharma of kingship is, is so fundamental to the fabric of existence, which the deity is, that even this very, very um, enticing um, moral imperative of ahimsa, even this very pervasive uh, Upanishadic classical Hindu ideology of detachment that the, the merchant, um, that the merchant is so drawn to, even that is eclipsed by the necessity of maintaining the world, uh, protecting Dharma, protecting the virtuous, punishing the wicked. And so uh, there in the nutshell is the, sh is the shell, uh, is, the, is the frame narrative, um, which is the, the cornerstone of the thesis. Um, if you'd like, we can actually go into the episodes themselves. Well, one thing I thought I would uh, segue from is, as you talk about uh, the king and ideological um, emphases uh, the royal ideology of uh, the virtue of violence. Uh, can you comment on that and, and, and the, uh, the dharmic um, uh, virtue of violence? Well, the first thing uh, before commenting is to, to remind our, our audience or contextualize um, that question um, uh, against the backdrop of this notion that, that violence cannot possibly be a virtue because non-violence ahimsa, ahimsa is the supreme um, a virtue, right? It's, 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 it's the paramount in dharma, ahimsa, to be, to never do harm, to do no harm. And there's something obviously very captivating and intuitively sound about that imperative. Now, the problem arises with the dharmas of specific folks. Mm -hmm. Because well, the king, the king wouldn't be um, under the same obligation uh, to fulfill ahimsa as uh, the ascetic would. 
well, ahimsa comes out of this this renouncer movement, this, this right. ascetic ideology that gets folded back into Hinduism. Um, and the, the proxy for the ascetic would be the brahmana, the 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 the, 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 the sagacious scholar priest who who can now be detached. There are no more animal sacrifices and, and can do no harm in that sense. Having said that, the uh, what happens at the beginning of the Ramayana, the sages come to Rama and say the demons are desecrating our sacrifices. Please protect us. Please preserve the sacrifice. Protection requires violence because you're protecting against those who would destroy. So the destruction of those who would destroy the destruction of the destructive must be um, practically construed as a virtue. So the virtue of violence is the virtue of the, 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 the penchant of the Kshatriya class, of the warrior class, of royal ideology, right? the sanguinary duty of kings, that we must shed blood in the name of protecting all that is sacred, so to speak. It, ironically, uh, himsa itself <laughs> must be safeguarded. Nonviolence must be safeguarded by bloodshed. Right, right. And so you mentioned the Kshatriya, and that's um, a higher-ranking caste, and it's dharma uh, as a warrior uh, is to protect um, those who can't protect themselves. No, the two highest-ranking Castes are, um, and whether you, whether we want to see caste as a reality on the ground or the way I look at it in the book as as ideologically uh, important. This is how the world was conceived as it should be, whether it is this way. But the two highest castes are the Brahmanas and the Kshatriyas, and they are they are they are the beginnings of these two strands of the Dharma Tathagatas. Right, mm. like to to really simplify. Um, this is um, sacred power versus um, secular power, right? or outer power versus inner power. And how is Durga's power framed within that? Because, I mean, she's in some ways the epitome of violence and power. Uh, how is she framed within uh, any virtue of violence? Well, what's fascinating about the Devi Mahatmya is that it's, it's, the, first, um, it's the first articulation within, within Hinduism. It's the first time we see a Sanskrit text that advances the supreme as um, as feminine. Uh, it's in its current form. It's probably from fifth, uh, sixth century CE. Um, the the text actually it's a mythologization of power as a principle itself. The the supreme goddess is a personification of power itself. And so that power classically has these these two these two outlets these two applications um, social power uh, and spiritual power. What's interesting is that the goddess of the text, if you look to the middle episode, which I argue is central, because in ring composition the midpoint is the central point. You go, you you, you there's one arm of the journey towards. Um, the, the goal, and then there's a journey back, and that goal is the midpoint. So the, the middle episode, which I argue is the, is 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 the crux of the text from a ring composition point of view, is one where the gods of heaven uh, are disempowered. The throne was usurped by the buffalo demon Mahisha, and the goddess herself is manifest. She becomes manifest 
through their collective wrath, their fire, their tages. And from that collective uh, energy, uh, the goddess congeals and uh, destroys the demonic foe and the gods, uh, their power is restored. Now, this power is very much a social political power in that Indra regains his throne of heaven uh, and is heavily implicated in uh, spiritual power or subtle dimensions in that now the sacrifice, the shares of the sacrifice uh, from the earth plane can be um, allotted uh, dharmically. Now okay. they can, they can, so she's, she is, um, she's portrayed as a personification of power that is both the power that the sages hone to uh, to achieve enlightenment, and also the power that that that, that kings hone for for their purposes. Okay, and then uh, what about the sacrificial element of of bloodshed? You make some comment on that in in the book, and also uh, the didactic purpose of the stories. Can you blend uh, those two elements in, in uh, can you address those two elements, the didactic nature of the work and also um, bloodshed as, as a sovereign sacrifice? Um, in terms of the didactic nature of the work, um, stories are arguably didactic by their very, by their very nature. Certainly in the Hindu tradition, um, stories like the epics and the Puranas um, are told to teach. Mm-hmm. They they hold uh, the most powerful way to incul, inculcate generations in a specific uh, ideology or philosophical bent is to tell stories that encode that. And so unconsciously one is conditioned after hearing the story of Rama throughout one's childhood. One would um, quite possibly, probably adopt Rama as a paragon of virtue and as a uh, a measurement of how one should could behave in the world ideally mm-hmm. for, ex- for example so um, it, the, the 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 sutra right? like the yoga sutras where you have you know um, um, yoga is a cessation of fluctuations of the mind sutra one and then you have you know potential exposition in a in a oral tradition um and then you have, uh, you know, then the seer resides in his own state. And you have, you have these sutras, uh, these aphorisms, these kernels of, of knowledge. The, the narrative texts are such that I liken them to the, the philosophies in there in the way that there's, um, there's coconut water and coconut, but it has to be cracked or the lemon has to be squeezed, right? It's, it's, it's in there, but it's for us to now apply our conscious mind and our analytical wits to, um, disentangle what the text is doing by its very design most in an unconscious fashion so narrative narrative is didactic um uh, i believe categorically but certainly in hindu world uh, more often than not what you have the whole point of the frame narrative is because uh is to show that there is an individual who has a question who needs to learn something he needs knowledge he needs transformation and so that very device points to um, how the tradition wants us to harness the text. So the king is disempowered, he becomes empowered at the end. This text, these series of mythologies are about empowerment. Hmm. So, and, yes. 
Yeah, I love your illustrations of the uh, lemon juice and, and the coconut, which would take a little extra work. Um, have you tried to uh, crack a coconut lately? Um, not on, not <laughs> I on guess purpose. A, as I recall, there's a soft spot. But anyway, great illustration. When when the coconut is cracked, you know what is the coconut note? Is it is it the text is trying to teach the, the tradition, as you say, like the honor the Vedic tradition, um, find a fascination in the Upanic, uh, Upanishadic era, and then now that we're into the Puranic Bhakti period, uh, is is there the synthesis of all all that has gone before and what is current now, and the text is trying to to harness uh, the legacy for, for the reader to, to learn and, and ho hopefully understand it and integrate into their life. Well, it would be so dizzying to try to synthesize logically thousands of years of religious history. And so the, ter the text does what, what only narr narrative can. It, it interweaves these disparate strands so masterfully in that we certainly have the Vedic element. You know, the goddess is literally praised by the gods as... A Vedic recitation. They invoke her as Vedic recitation. There's a, a, a verse from the, there are four hymns in the text. Two are Thanksgiving hymns and two are hymns of invocation. Mm -hmm. And the first Thanksgiving hymn in chapter four of the Shakradi Stuti, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous hymn. It's the only portion of the text in, a, in, a, in an elegant meter, in the Vasanta uh, Tilika meter. Um, and they basically say that you are. You are the essence whereby, um, whereby the gods are, are satisfied in Vedic ritual. You do the swaha. When you say swaha, the gods are satisfied. You are that essence. When you're doing rituals or filial piety to the ancestors, you say swada. And they're saying you are also that. So they liken her to um, the essence of Vedic ritual. They also obviously liken her as the, the, the power, the shakti required to attain the Upanishadic um, um, uh, paragon, the apex of the Upanishadic mm -hmm. ideology, they say, look, well, you also are what the sages contemplate to shear off all of their flaws. You are that knowledge that gives them truth. In the same hymn, they're saying she's both. And the hymn itself is what? The hymn itself is a devotional hymn. Mm -hmm. The gods are, 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 are singing their love and their appreciation to the goddess. And so... Uh, the, the frame narrative um, very clearly lays out the idiom of bhakti, and that, that is that is whereby you know they sit down and they devote themselves. They offer fruits and flowers and incense to a murti that they craft by a riverbank of the Devi. They yeah. use a bhakti idiom. It's 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 profound. It's so unassuming. The frame narrative basically says you can use a bhakti idiom to acquire the fruits of Vedic ritual. And acquire the fruits of uh, Upanishadic speculation because it's all it's all grounded in the one true true power, which is the Devi. And and speaking of that power, um, one of the things that I noticed in your work was that you do uh, bring a corrective uh, to uh, academic opinion, scholarship, if you will. Uh, on page one thirty eight, you mentioned. Uh, some scholarly opinions on uh, or conceptions to Durga's uh, source of power that um, it is not her own, but it's derived. And and you challenge that with um, uh, a thesis that she is uh, autonomous in her power. Uh, and 
to me that that looks like a pretty strong corrective, especially when you uh, you tackle Doniger on on page one thirty eight one thirty nine. Can you comment on on how you came uh, upon that uh, that view? Um, sure. Um, so, the, so this is the first time, right? This is this is. So let's think about this for a moment. Take a step back. Hinduism. We are taught, or we we teach Hinduism in terms of, how, of being comprised of you know various philosophical strands. Uh, but in terms of sectarian Hinduism, although there are many, many, many gods that one can invoke, uh, Ganesha is a household deity for everyone. Uh, generally, Hindus, Hindus will elect as their supreme face of the divine Vishnu, Shiva, or the goddess. You know, this is the way we teach mm -hmm. Hinduism. Right. So, so goddess veneration or Shaktism is, you know, one third of this of this vast religion. This is the very first text of the goddess in Sanskrit. And no one before this thesis has bothered to look at the text as a whole. No one has bothered to analyze the text as a whole, frame it all, and understand what the, how the text is working on its own terms. This thesis shows that the text, in the way we have it currently, it's a very stable text now. Um, that the text has an integrity of its own, despite the multiple authorship, either, um, either throughout the various stages of, of uh, tacking on or, or, or in the final stage, a great deal of conscious um, awareness was applied to the form and the structure of the text and the role of that form and structure in exerting influence uh, mm. over, ex over exegesis. The whole point of it is to point to us across time how the text wishes to be read. Now, this is an idea by, uh, this is an idea of Umberto Eco. He basically says texts are interpretation machines. They posit by their very fabric how they want to be read, who their model reader is. So in one text, a rabbit hole is expected, and another text, a magic rabbit hole is jarring because the text itself will tell you whether it wants to be read in such a manner that that would be, uh, that would be acceptable in terms of your suspension of disbelief. And so in looking at the text as a whole, we see that this episode that is the middle episode and the most important episode in my opinion, which is why it relates to by far the most famous iconographical moment of the Devi, with her slaying the buffalo demon pinned beneath, pinned beneath her, uh, her shula, her spear, and her, her lion taking care of part of the form as well. This, this very famous iconographical moment is essentially what is celebrated in the middle episode. Now, from that episode alone, if you look at it as a fragment, it is, uh, I certainly understand and resonate with why one would get, uh, one would conclude that the Devi is, is comprised of the power of all the gods because how she emerges is all the gods are really ticked off at, at you know this this big old buffalo demon stole Indra's throne and Indra goes to Vishnu and Shiva the great gods and says look what's going on here and they're all so angered so incensed that from their wrath this this fire this tejas emerges from all of their wrath and the Devi is born from their wrath and they clone all their weapons and gives the the Devi a weapon in kind so Shiva clones his trident for example and the goddess therefore has a trident in the context of that episode, it's understandable why one would conclude that she's comprised of the powers of the gods. However, 
if you understand that that's the second episode, the reason the first episode is the way that it is, and I'm certainly not the first caller to, to point this out or, 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 or argue this. The first episode shows that the goddess is there at Pralaya, at the dissolution of the last age. Vishnu is sleeping on a serpent couch. Brahma is about to create a universe anew. And even in that moment, in that crevice before the dawn of time, the Devi is already there. They invoke her and she emerges from the body of Vish. She emerges from the body of Vishnu. So the point of, of entry of the goddess in all the episodes is from someone else's body. That doesn't so much bespeak the idea that they create the goddess. It bespeaks the idea that the primordial power is in all life. It's in all of us. It's within us. So in every episode, she merges from the bodies of other beings. Mm. Nothing exists because she, even when she manifests other, other goddesses, they emerge from her body. She doesn't snap her fingers and roll them into existence. And that's a, that's a very important trope. So what, what I would say in terms of a corrective is twofold. By looking at it as a whole, you're going to get a different composite picture, especially when you, you understand the mechanics of ring composition. Um, secondly, that is how you understand that the second episode whereby the goddess restores the throne of heaven is what the text is prioritizing. It's saying, look here, look to this royal theology piece, look at the importance of the goddess. It's saying this is what is most important in the world of the text. And so royal theology eclipses ascetic ideology because ascetic ideology is nowhere to be found in that middle episode, although it pervades other points of the text. Okay, well, thank you for, for tackling that question. I'm going to add to it a little bit. Um, when I go back to page 67, I think this is the only, <coughs> excuse me, the only um, uh, time in your book that you refer to Purusha or the Cosmic Man, but you, you tie Durga to, uh, or you seem to, if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, uh, in Pranic Accounts of a Creation, you write, the Cosmic Man emits various items and entities without being depleted in the process, like Durga. So are you um, framing Durga as an equivalent to Purusha or uh, help, just help me understand what, what you're doing there? So Durga is literally a personification of power in the text. Uh, power, um, while power is something um, that various entities and gods can have, Power is something that the Devi is. So while those of us who possess power can uh, be exhausted of our supplies of power, power itself can never be exhausted of power. And so the Devi never tires. It's, it's, against, it's against the fabric of the mythologization of power itself. She's not exhausted by any of the manifestations of power that she puts forth because she is power itself. Uh, another way of looking at that is that no demon can have more power than the Devi because the power that they have is only a portion of the power that she is. And so t is she equivalent to Purusha? Are they, are they distinct? Are we looking at another binary? Uh, Purusha in the Samkhya sense, like Purusha and Prakriti? Yeah. So the, the, text will, the text takes various philosophical strands the goddess as Maya, for example, in Advaita Vedanta, or the goddess as Shakti. Um, and the, the text draws on those philosophical strands and interweaves them in a way that only narrative can. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, um, on the one hand, you can look at the Devi as a philosophical principle in these other schools, but the text is saying that, well, she's not just Prakriti in a, in a Purusha Prakriti sense, because she's also beyond the Purusha Prakriti divide. Okay. So it's, it's harnessing, it's, it's mm. harnessing the available philosophical, theological notions of, uh, of the feminine. And it's stitching them into a tapestry that's more than the sum of its parts. Okay. And, and but you're, you're setting this context. Uh, chronologically, we're looking at about the 6th century CE. That's what we surmise. Yeah. 5th to 8th. Yeah. And, I mean, help me chronologically. Has the Trimurti of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva already been established? And this is serving as a corrective uh, to displace Brahma with uh, Shakti? Or is the uh, uh, Vishnu, Shiva, Shakti Trimurti uh, the, the precedent and later displaced with uh, Brahma? Certainly in the text we have an understanding that, Vishna, uh, that Vishnu and Shiva are great gods. Because there are times in which, for example, in the middle episode, the, the, the Vedic gods of heaven, they go to these great gods of Hinduism now. They go to Shiva, they go to Vishnu to complain. So it has this idea that there is the Vedic pantheon. Above and beyond the Vedic pantheon, there are the three gods of the, uh, pertaining to these three, three cosmogonic functions. So Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva are all in the text. And it's, okay. cle it's clear that they play a larger role. For example, in the first episode, it's uh, pralaya, it's dissolution. There are no Vedic gods. There are no heavens in the sense of uh, a throne for Indra to rule. What we have is um, Brahma and a sleeping Vishnu. So the text very consciously presents a force that is greater than even the great gods of Hinduism. Um, Brahma, for example, in his praise, to invoke her, he praises her. In the first praise of the text, Brahma praises Devi to invoke her. So we have the creator at the beginning of time, the creator God at the beginning of time, calling forth this primordial, mysterious mother, right? And he basically says, like, you are the power whereby I am embodied. You are the power whereby Vishnu is embodied. He says this quite literally. You are the power by Shiva's embodied. How on earth can I praise you? You're even the power of praise itself. I, what am I doing here? I'm praising you, but you are, you're beyond, even beyond. And, and he says that quite literally. So the text definitely presents uh, a mythologizing power itself and equating that with the great goddess. It really is this brilliant move where any powerful being in the universe is a portion of the supreme power, which is the goddess. And is she, um, I know with, with Shiva, he's going to be compared to um, at least, uh, Rudra in, in the Vedic pantheon, as you mentioned, the Vedic pantheon. Is, is uh, Durga uh, in any way uh, correlated with, with one of the goddesses of the Vedic uh, era, you know, Vak or um, uh, Prithvi? Um, you have the, the Vedic... Uh... So one of, I believe it's Coburn who, who coined, who, who phrased it this way, uh, that the, while there are, while in the Vedic era and beyond there are goddesses of, of Hinduism, they're small g goddesses in the way that um, the Greek pantheon has an Artemis or a Diana. 
mm. for example. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time we have a capital G goddess uh, for which there is no correlate. Uh, right. There is no idea of such in the Vedic worldview. Um, if, for example, if you can correlate Lakshmi to the idea of Sri, there is this very ancient Sri Suktam, for example, that's often chanted in Vedic sacrifice. Um, that's still understood as a small G goddess or a consort goddess. Yeah. And this is the first time you see um, a large G goddess or the divine itself. Um, and, and the small. Each one itself is feminine. Right, right. And all the small G goddesses have their con, they are consorts, are they not? Yes. Yeah. Well, Raj, I, I don't know how much more time we have. Um, are there any themes that, that uh, I've missed in my questioning that you'd, you'd like to pick up on before we, before we close off? Um, nothing really comes to mind. I, I think you touched on, well, you know, um, what are the main themes of the book? The main themes are that narrative is, is tremendously didactic and we need to learn how to read it on its own terms. Um, this particular narrative encodes, uh, encodes, encodes an opposition in a way, encodes the structural opposition of royal and ascetic ideologies that we call the term of double helix. Um, and it does so, so as to privilege royal power, uh, because the goddess, um, fulfills the role of the sovereign on the cosmic sphere. I'd say that's, those are the biggest takeaways from the book. Um, it, in terms of its correctives, it corrects the ways in which we read Puranas, mm -hmm. taking them as, as meaningful wholes. Um, it corrects the idea that the, that the merchant is, is, is favored in the book. Clearly, uh, at least I argue that the king is the, is the, is the favorite character of the book. Um, it also corrects this idea of the Hindu goddess as terrifying and wrathful. Um, there are associations of Durga worship uh, with taboo, uh, marginalized tribal practices. Um, once we understand the text presents her as ultimately a royal figure, a royal goddess, we understand that it primes us to understand that her wrathful emanations are an episodic break from her benign uh, order-granting essence. So those are essentially the main takeaways from the book, and I think we pretty much touched on all of that. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat with you, and I uh, really appreciate you um, inviting me to, to walk through uh, some of these questions with you, and I, uh, I do trust that your book will uh, make the impact that you're hoping it will. Well, thank you for your time, Craig, and I'm sure we'll have many more conversations on and off the air. Okay, thanks so much, Rod. Okay, bye-bye.